Hi, I'm Rich Wynn. And I'm Rebecca Nixon. And this is the, the PropTech, PropTech Growth, Growth Podcast. Podcast. Every episode, we interview an expert in the PropTech startup space, gathering their advice and expertise to help you run a successful PropTech business. I'm the Portable PropTech CMO, and I help PropTech startups build and scale their commercial growth strategy. I'm Rich from Richwind Consultancy. I specialize in operations, sales, and process, helping fintechs and PropTech companies to grow. Welcome, Steve Rad, to the podcast today. Steve is probably best known for Inventory Base, but does have numerous other companies, not just one, but a few PropTech companies. Thank you, Steve, for coming on and welcome. Thanks, Rich. Nice to see you both. It's been a ride trying to grow successful, if you can call it that, prop tech company. My advice straight off the bat will be don't do two. Just do one. <laughs> Focus. Keep the main thing. Do you want to give us a sort of rundown? You started about 10 years ago. Give us a sort of bio of where you are, where you've come from. Why we launched back in 2011, if you will, if anyone goes back that far, you recall that they changed the laws around the holding of the tenancy deposit. You've got several firms that would be the custodials of the tenant's deposit and therefore require some evidence from the landlord or the agent to clearly indicate that the damages or dilapidations raised against the tenant to deduct from their deposit would be fairly apportioned and documented and therefore very clear in the sense of having a move-in report that snapshotted the condition of the property and a move-out report that snapshotted the end and then the comparison provided in between. So the burden fell on the landlords to provide this evidence and to be able to claim anything from the tenant's deposit which was good because I remember being a tenant myself and being told that I was paying for 200 pounds worth of cleaning fluids and materials for a small one bed flat the industry needed fixing and at the time property managers weren't prepared for it and so you needed to go in and do these large detailed documents but it was something around 15, 16% dispute figure, at least in Scotland. And that was reduced to 2%. Scotland, I think, led the charge in that law change. And so you had this army of what we call inventory providers that were suddenly let loose on the land and saw this great opportunity to come in and provide the independent third party non-biased service to come in and document those properties in full, have the time to go in there and focus on that. And they'd go around the country or their town and do a few throughout the day. Our software was designed for them, for those independent contractors. They've got all these jobs to manage. They've got different clients requesting them to be different places at different times. We provided that job management system for them to streamline the process of getting the right person to the right place at the right time to do a particular job. And then, of course, around 2010, I think the App Store was first released. And it was just coming into its own. And we spotted an opportunity to combine that online management system with an app and you could go out and streamline the process of data collection in the field so rather than scribbling walking into a an audio dictation device it would be about eliminating the post-production so that you could take the photos you could take all the evidence and you click a button and it produces a report we cut the process of getting those reports out to a customer more than in half and we saved a lot of people time in fact they could double their output and earn more money so it was a great time but We've also grown in both directions with letting agents and inventory providers with inventory base in that there's a lot of letting agents who use the software for property visits, for inspections, for risk assessments and everything. And today we have a collaboration platform, if you will, that works between the suppliers and the property managers to do a number of tasks and centralize all of that documentation activity and audit trail into one place. I think that's one of the hardest things 
when you have a prop tech or any business is finding that need, whether it be B2B, B2C, and providing a better user experience, which obviously you continue to build on, which is fantastic. Now, did you start as a single founder or did, were you a co-founder? Co Radweb, the company behind the company, was founded back in 2005. Myself and my business partner, James, university kids looking for some pocket money on the side, built websites for people and web applications. And we actually got involved in some pretty serious tech, those business line systems like one of the more notable ones was this and Krupp, the elevator and escalator guys building change management systems that would have to go in and allocate a project to change hardware in a particular place and go through a whole workflow of making sure that was documented and compliant and secure. And so then we got into e-commerce, but I think our ambition from the moment we launched Radweb was to become a software house and to find a product to really get behind. And the SaaS industry was embryonic back then the ability to deliver software in the browser that behaved like a desktop product that you put a cd in i install it how do we get something to behave like that without having to send a cv it's what i actually based my whole dissertation around and so it was very much a front-end client-side bleeding-edge technology that we wanted to play with but we wanted to combine that bleeding edge with a good product that people would have a need for. And that was our ambition more than anything else in what we were going to do. We weren't real estate guys at all. We just come across this industry, found a need and thought, you know what, as a SaaS solution, this stacks up, this works. When you're a programmer, the fun is in the innovation, in developing solutions and connecting them all together and seeing them work. And especially when they are then used by thousands of people to affect change across an industry, it's really rewarding. So the fact that we're working on these cutting edge innovations is what gets us up in the morning, not necessarily what industry they're in. And the fact is we're in so many industries now where the software is very much a platform that you can customize and tailor around your business. We see all sorts of opportunities and applications of our product and you've also got now property inspect is that right that's right that is exactly one of the reasons why we created property inspect is to cater for that everything else market the residential market has got a fierce need for keeping on top of property management maintenance and compliance and something like four million tenancies per year there's a lot of activity going on but there's so much else out there as well, whether you're a surveyor doing home inspections, home buyer reports or commercial building surveys, whether you're looking at buildings to do plan maintenance forecasts, what the costs will be over the next 10 years, whether you're doing asset registers and wanting to report on the condition of all the assets in a building, multifamily, build to rent, housing, social housing, especially the tools we've been building really are to provide that digital, that platform approach to streamline operations so get to a property with some digital checklist form or survey and carry out uh, what's in that form and that checklist that really lends itself to any service provider whether you're fire risk assessments whether you're testimony electrical safety some of the most exciting industries working now fire safety is a big one as you remember rich we went to the london build show and half of that was devoted around fire safety. It's a big deal now, especially since Grenfell. You've got the Miami building collapse in America, that tragedy, which was all around accountability to, hey, we told you this is happening for a while now. You just stuck it in a drawer and no one's followed it up. Well, that's the problem we're solving, right? This is human life at the end of the day. We need to look after it. We need to make sure 
properties are fit for human habitation and we need to make sure commercial buildings public spaces are fit for traffic and keep on top of the health and maintenance and well-being of those properties we love the fact that anyone can come to our platform and create something new out of it even today we're still seeing new applications of our software uh, both in the real estate industry and outside of it and you're in a few different countries now as well what was the thought behind that was that always the plan to go global it was a no-brainer because our solution wasn't really in other markets. The UK and I think Australia is the only place in the world that requires an escrow approach to tenants' deposits. We thought the US would follow suit five years later. Nope, still the Wild West. Landlord puts their hands in the pocket of the tenant at all time. Um, in the UK, I think they've really led the charge when it comes to the private rented sector. Way behind in property sales, as we know, that leads into the other product that we do around sales and conveyancing reports. But with lettings, I think we're probably one of the most advanced nations in the world for managing tenancies and, and keeping on top and tenants' rights. Going out to the other places represented gaps in the market that we wanted to explore. And so someone approached us, and if you're looking to expand to another country, find a partner who knows that territory. And that's exactly what we did when it came to the US. We found a couple of guys, they had experience in our market, loved our product. It was great as an initial leg up. We found a similar partner in South Africa and then launched there. And David's still with us today. And we just registered in Poland to provide that EU uh, company post-Brexit. Over the years, we found passionate people who believe in the product as much as we do, as much as the founders. And those are the people you want to partner with. Those are people who are excited to work with and can see the opportunity in the market. It's very difficult to try and scale both vertically and geographically at the same time. I would never recommend it, even to my worst enemy. If you're going to do it, it's all about the people that can take you there. You can't do it alone. Even from a vertical perspective, in hindsight, I would have taken the same approach to expanding in different verticals to find people who know that industry, know that vertical, know that sector, and can provide that steer and that guidance into that sector. At what point were you at with the business when you felt you were ready to expand into new territories? I'm asking this question because I've worked with a number of different startups who have prematurely gone into new markets before they'd really established themselves enough in the existing market before going out and potentially burning a lot of runway. And I've also worked at startups who've attempted to cross into other verticals same issue and I've worked at startups where they left it too late and missed an opportunity that could have been amazing so I'd really love to hear from you about what it takes to get that because I think it's a really crucial position for a business to be in absolutely pretty confident that I made probably every mistake ever made by a business founder that you would expect over the years and when it comes to expanding into other territories is easier than expanding into other verticals sometimes because it needs very much universal regulation differs obviously from one place to the next and that creates a sense of urgency in the uk obviously that creates a need that's stronger than another nation but order trails and compliance and proving that i am a good property manager is becoming increasingly important across the world i think it's about really the management processes if you focus first on the management processes, the rest can take care of itself, such as if we're going to go out to a new market, what if we get a customer? What if that customer needs support? Who are they going to call? How is support going to work? Luckily, for places like the States, <clears throat> they're very much used to a 
closed quiet operation like they don't call google they don't call facebook they don't call these companies and so we got lucky when expanding out to america we could pretty much run it through chat through email support and things like that the customer base expected that and that's become the norm whereas in the uk it was phones are open nine to five thirty and we'll take your call because we want to provide that support around the clock and actually it represents different customer bases it's quite a unique customer base in the uk these people are great at what they do and they need support from their suppliers be effective especially the inventory providers they're working to the good early hours of the morning sometimes i can only imagine their life sometimes it's i'll get the kids to bed i'll come back at 10 o'clock and i'll finish off some of my reports and i need to ask a question and we've been there especially being in multiple time zones we provide that round the clock support that first and foremost is what grew our business always being there for our customer especially when you're trying to evolve a product at the same time for anyone starting out today, I'd say don't build a platform, not unless you're in this for 10 years, build a yeah. scalable product that does one thing really well. And therefore you can document it, you can provide training videos around it, provide all the necessary information to make the customer be as successful as possible with it. Because if you build something bigger than that, you're always going to obviously be supporting it. So you need to have those support processes in place to make sure if something doesn't go exactly right, or there's a bug, you're there and you provide that care, that support, and then fix it. And that's real our credibility of our customers. In under five minutes, we fix things that have gone wrong for them, or at least just provide guidance and support whatever time it is they need us. Depending on your product, if you can scale support and you can automate onboarding and you can automate training, then great. You can expand quite quickly, quite fiercely. If you can't do those things, if it's more of a, I need to talk to each and every customer I get, you need to be very careful about what you take on there. This seems to be a real pattern across the board as we talk to a lot of different people in the space. There are people with great ideas and there are people doing impressive things with AI and blockchain and all of those things are really cool and really interesting and there's a place for them. But the real movers and shakers who are successful in the space are the ones who take bit of a painful process a bit of a painful checkbox exercise or something that's just a bit menial and old-fashioned and backwards just modernize it just make it automated and simple build an app build an online platform that does it really easily automate your onboarding and put as much documentation as you can online so that people can self-serve and then scaling just doesn't become a problem and not only that you become part of an ecosystem very quickly and simply because you get slotted in place of an existing process that people don't like doing if you try and be too much and you try and replace too many parts of the puzzle all of a sudden you become a bit cumbersome to onboard internally and potentially a bit expensive or a bit complicated and then suddenly your scaling is slowed down and it is really hard to build a business. You hit the nail on the head. You're either a, a, the all-in-one solution, you try and be everything, or you're mm. a piece of the puzzle, like you said. And you, when you look at the CRMs, they're the trying to be everything, right? And it's been to our advantage, really, because they've got so much to build and so much to support and so much to focus on. It's a never-ending, growing beast that you need to continuously feed. And that provides an opportunity, the opportunity being that we can do this part way better than you can. We're going to focus just on this piece and we're going to make it fantastic and the customer will love it. 
really the ultimate scaling success factor is integration. Does it work with the data? You know, does it put the data into that place that I needed to go? Does it replace the process, but also integrate with it as well? And we've been in this thing 10 years for seven or eight. It's been very difficult to get into the CRM. Some have come to us because the customers have said, I want this. I love this and I want this. Do it. That's really what you need for the CRMs to say yes. But now, ever since Repit did the foundations launch and created a marketplace where you could build an app into their ecosystem, that's opened up more doors. People now are releasing APIs to be able to do that because they have to, because it is now expected of them. And I wish it was expected of them 10 years ago. We'd be a lot better off today, but it, it's why I love this industry as well, because even now, 10 years on, it still feels like we're just getting started. Let's talk a little bit about APIs and integrations, because I'm a process person, I'm a data person, and I see a lot of people get excited about selling their product and telling everyone they've got an API or telling everyone they've got an integration. But in terms of the practical day-to-day -day use of the product, it doesn't always play out the way that they hope it will. Having an API doesn't really mean anything unless you've got something practical to do with it. Can you walk us through just at a really strategic level how you successfully used APIs and integrations to grow your customer base or to just keep the existing one happy? Yeah, absolutely. Again, it comes down to solving the need that's not solved with whatever particular stack they have. Yes, you need people interested in your product first before an API is relevant. The very minimum need is the need to not rekey data, for example. I don't want to type an address twice. Sounds quite menial, but at scale, when I manage thousands of properties or hundreds of properties, it's a problem, right? And it's easy to Royal Mail database plumbed in and you can just type the first few letters of an address and fill it in. But it's the link as well, because in order to send something back, we need to know where it came from, right? So thinking of property data was first and foremost, the main thing. If I log onto your platform and I use Repit, for example, if I log on, will my properties be there? That, then I can click on one and I can do an inspection on it. The real need I think came with maintenance. Maintenance was potentially a product of an inspection of some kind. It's whether a tenant's seen something that's wrong, whether someone's gone around to a property and seen something that's wrong, whether inventory clerks are snagging issues or construction builders are snagging issues along the way. Our software combines the report and the observations and the condition with follow-up actions. This thing needs maintenance, this thing needs replacing, these things need cleaning. So it could be the cleaning department gets a list of all those issues, maintenance and get a list of issues, purchasing, get a list of things they need to buy all from one property visit. But you've got these maintenance progression systems that take issues like Fixflow, great example. And so at the back end of a report, I've done the inspection. Now Fixflow doesn't have an inspection solution. Someone uses our inspection solution, pushes the issues, marks the report complete, and the issues go across the Fixflow whether they can then have a workflow and a progression all the way through that process. And then obviously the two systems are linked back. So it tells us when that issue has been marked off and done and, and it goes into the audit trail. It's a perfect example of an integration that works for two independent side prop techs that both solve two different needs very well and plug mm -hmm. in to those wider CRMs that just focus on the core very well. On COVID, how did you get through it? Did it help? Did it hinder? It hindered some progress with our customer base, but I think overall it helped the software industry as a whole. It's very, I remember a time where people would say, unless we're in an office shouting each other across the room, work's not getting done. 
And in order for work to get done outside of that environment, you need the tools, the platform, the CRM, the audit trail system that you know where people are going to be. And that activity proves that they did do that job and have delivered that. And so we saw the largest agents quickly adopt every tech stack they could find and plug it all together. And a really great example, and they don't mind me using their name, it's Alexandra and Co-Group, who took Repit, Fixflow, Inventory Base, Depository, and have connected it in a way I've never seen before, which is amazing, actually, which is where appointments can go into Repit, and they can tick in Repit which supplier, inventory clerk, that they want to do that report, let's say, if it's an inventory. And then it goes into their inventory base, which they never log into, they never need to, because from there, it then sends off to their supplier who's connected and invited to their inventory base system as an external provider. They can then sub-assign it and do their internal workflows with their team once it's done, which then automatically uploads it back to depository. And if there are any issues that have been flagged as a result of rules, condition logic, triggers, et cetera, or as a result of the inspector raising those issues manually in the field, those issues would find their way to fix flow. And if it happens to be a checkout, those tenant related issues and costs would find their way to depository. And so it's a platform that is providing the aggregator and the centralized repository of, of these documents effectively between all these different systems. That's an amazing place to end up in for ourselves, because even if you're not a customer of inventory base, you can still leverage inventory base to work mm -hmm. with all your suppliers and your other systems as well. I would love to know your view on VC versus organic growth. When do you get VCs involved? When do you just grow organically? And what are the costs and benefits based on your experience? I'm not the best person to ask, but I'm good to ask now in hindsight. So again, it's talking about mistakes. As I mentioned, James and I, we were geeks building different cool things for different people. We happen to be in the lucky position of having some good clients who paid us a lot of money to help them with their tech while we were building inventory base. We were funded really by the work we were doing over here and we were investing that money over here to build out our product. And so we were completely bootstrapped. And it was only two years ago where we joined with Reach, who are technically a VC. It was more of an accelerator, but as Reach were in four corners of the globe, it was a great partner for us to join their program and go out there in the US, they're in Canada, they're in Australia, Europe, and it was in line with where we wanted to grow as well. It wasn't a money play, it was really a strategic alignment because we were really by then in profit, still bootstrapped. James and I still own the whole company and I would never do it that way again. That's the interesting thing because you talk about runway. If you happen to get yourself into the lucky position we were in where you have got some money that you can trust at least for a while that will see you through until you are in revenue, then use it. Some of the wiser investors out there would always say invest with other people's money. I've heard that a lot on your own. You've got to make a decision. Do I want this to work? quickly and find out if it will work quickly or do i want this to be the next 10 years of my life and really go at it and really grind with you'll need pig-headed discipline to get there in hindsight if i started again today whether it was a platform approach or whether it was a very focused application that could scale really well i would take vc money because it gets you there faster because trying to go organically and allow the marketing pot to grow year on year in line with revenue it's just going to take a lot of time and time, I think, is one of the biggest factors to success.
we were lucky with time because we were super ahead of the pack when it came to technology we were building stuff that was very magnetic at the time in terms of just using the software was cool the fact that it adapted in the web browser and scaled down to your phone all that was unseen back then you look at repit today still looks like it did back then 10 years ago if you look at monday.com you remember monday.com it was plastered everywhere it was just a to-do list that was the pulse that they reskinned changed the user interface and user experience and got some funding and pushed it out and that thing went fast it took market share quickly i'm talking like 40 50 percent i could be wrong on those numbers but it was really quick and then what happened a few years later dot loop came and stole loads of their customers because they came out with an almost identical app with a slightly better user experience five guys can launch a successful burger chain down the road and then shake shack comes out these things have been successful over there but they just dropped over here and they're suddenly really successful it's because they just done something really right when it comes to software it's all about the user experience you can get a really good product that people need and the experience of using that product is fantastic they'll swap switch now because i can get my data out i've got integrations that i can swap i can interchange this integration with that integration and I'm back online and I'm back on track. Without that, you haven't got a chance in hell of getting someone to move across. With regards to recruitment, obviously it's hard to get the right people. And you said you managed to get some really good people along the way. When did you feel you needed people? And obviously your developers were all on shore as well. Do you see that as a benefit, having that sort of control? Yeah, I do. For the last 10 years, I've seen people outsource tech they get a pretty good idea of what they want but they don't know the nitty-gritty they don't know what they don't know when it comes to building tech i come from a background where i was a programmer from the age of 12 years old i did programming for many years i built websites i built software i built things that were utilized nationwide by lots of people myself and yet i'm the worst programmer in the company i wouldn't touch it nowadays we built a team we built a family we were all aligned in terms of what we're passionate about it was exciting to build this level of technology and we were all in it together look developers are expensive that's the one thing you're going to burn through your runway with really quickly because the age, age old thing of going oh here's some money so let's go and recruit some developers okay 100k they're getting 100 they're getting 80 they're getting 90. why would you pay someone 90 grand who's completely unproven untested but what we did is we went to the university and this is exactly how I cut my teeth in industry. I went on a placement and I did a year long placement programming at a company to get industry experience, programming real world applications under the guidance of established business people. So we went to the University of Portsmouth and the University of Southampton. We said we want to recruit students for internships um, and graduates. <clears throat> And we quickly made a name for ourselves because of the level of tech we were working on. It was exciting, it was bleeding edge, etc. Word got around quickly that we were giving away great jobs. These guys were lining up to get 15 grand a year to work on the most complicated forward bleeding edge products. It was amazing. And it, the benefit was mutual. They got to really cut their teeth in a commercial environment, building a commercial product and seeing that go out and be used and affect change in people's lives. So it was mutually beneficial to do that, but it, it was the most strategic play we ever made because we were able to build. Today, we've got a team of 12 full-time programmers in our Portsmouth office who are all friends, will get on really well, 
most of them have come from the university on an internship who have then returned full-time as a graduate because they love what they do doesn't matter what industry is in really because that's not what they're in they're in software development software engineering and at the very cutting edge of everything one person said oh have you heard of r&d credits and today i get phone calls all the time people that deal with r&d credits but back then it was new they said if you're spending money on programming staff you can get like 65 percent 90 percent of what you're paying them back in terms of a tax credit so if you're in profit at the end of the year and you owe the government x thousands of pound they'll wipe that off if you've employed and paid over that figure in innovation of some kind tech engineering whatever it is but research and development credits the government has various programs and incentives to allow you to reinvest your money in the growth of the company and new salaries and new roles rather than just paying tax all the time your strategy seems to have worked obviously you made mistakes as you said but from the learning that seems to work so if you're starting a company today who do you need around you that has some form of strategy for you, whether they want to help you use their network or if it's just someone who can set up those management processes for you because you're very good at tech, but you don't understand how to run a business? And what would you say is the way to go or where you get your strategy from? Do you read lots of books? I consumed everything I could get my hands on back in the day. I was a big reader. I only have time for Audible now in my net time and no extra time like when you're driving or when you're on the train so i'll gobble up everything and i'll read everything if i've got the time for it but in terms of aligning with people around you if i was coming into prop tech today i would root out the reaches of the world the pi labs of the world the guild of property those organizations that have both experienced people at the helm and a route to potential customers as well or mentors i think mentorship has been the one thing that no one should ever say they're too big for they're too smart for they're too developed or too far along the journey for even mentors have mentors right tony robbins the biggest mentor in the world admit to having several mentors himself so mentors have been i think number one the best thing for us and then more so recently and i think covid accelerated this as well is then meeting people more in the industry mentors take many shapes and forms and so aligning yourself with as many people who know your audience have been in your shoes at some point or at least know your tech or that side of things grab as much as you can read every book you can that's the advice it's so interesting speaking to all these different people and their different takes on it i think yours is completely different to anybody else's because you've been in this industry for 10 years before PropTech was probably even a thing because you've been there and done it and made the mistakes this podcast could provide a bit of mentorship for someone to listen to part of the reason behind us wanting to create this podcast was obviously speaking to people like you to help people along the way we spent a lot of time in the beginning just on the product i was obviously from a programming background and that's one of the mistakes we made being almost too focused for too long on the product and still today <laughs> there's still a large sprint that the guys are doing you've got to be agile You've got to go to market iteratively. You've got to say, here's our version one, here's MVP, here's what we feel at least solves the problem, reduces admin, whatever it will then iterate based on success factors, right? Going from there based on someone's willing to pay for it. If we add this thing, let's add that thing. So take an agile approach to some of these things. As kids trying to be in the SaaS industry, we didn't think too much about the exit. And here we are 10 years later, lots of people banging on our door and wanting a piece now. So start at the end and think, what is the goal? Do I want to exit in three years? 
for one million pounds. Just put a number out there. Just give yourself something to work towards. My number has gone up and gone up over 10 years. It's changed. So don't worry about if it's the right answer. Just put something there. Just put something down on paper that you can work towards your North Star and say, okay, if I need to exit in three years, I haven't got three years of product runway to do. I haven't got three years to mess around trying to build profit to reinvest into marketing. Go and get some money for someone who I can sell my vision to and run and give them a piece because speed to market is one massive major important factor to success if someone can give you a few hundred k or whatever it may be to just go in high and get started immediately if you can skip around and prove the product first you're in a better position because if you take money pre-revenue you have to give a lot of it away just like cashing in a bit of profit on your stocks you can de-risk over time give a little bit away over time but start figuring out what it is you want from this and then work backwards would be the best advice and yeah don't ever take the long play to it because we're not in that world anymore that we were 10 years ago things will happen too quickly now thank you for your time today steve i've certainly learned which is great and i have to get out some of my management books tonight get read i have a read because i've never read anything like that before so <laughs> yeah. how others more experienced people talk about it <laughs> yeah yeah, definitely. I'll send you some. Great. Thank you both. Thanks for joining us on the PropTech Growth Podcast. To learn more, you can find us on LinkedIn or email proptechpodcast at icloud.com. See you next time.